morning, everybody. It is June 2nd, 2023. And this is Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And today I am joined by Dr. Martin Marin. Good morning, Marty. Good morning, Lisa. Hello to everybody tuning in. Good to have everybody here. We're getting populated on Facebook. If you're watching live, if you're listening to us in podcast world, you can start us whenever the heck you want. Today is June 2nd. It happens to be AED and CPR Awareness Week. So I wanted to take a moment and recognize this important time to check the batteries in your AED, make sure that your CPR certification is up to date. If you need to take a refresher course, there's lots of online learning opportunities at the American Heart Association or your local Red Cross. And we encourage every workplace, every school place, every team, every congregation to be prepared for sudden cardiac arrest. And our Drill Doctor Heart program is available online to help you prepare your community for a cardiac emergency. So that was my advertisement for AED and CPR Awareness Week. And Marty, any comments on AED and CPR preparedness? Super important, no question about it, and deserves the focus that you're giving it for sure. It can be obviously an incredibly powerful intervention that can save many, many lives. So super important the awareness and education about it. So totally love it. I'm going to ask you a question that we didn't plan. Yeah. Being AED and CPR Awareness Week, we see things on TV. We watch really bad CPR on TV that would never really work. We see drama around it. But you've seen the other side of somebody who's been out in the field, who just minding their own business, has a cardiac arrest, a bystander steps in and gets them into your hands with a functional brain and their heart restarted. Can you talk about what it's like for you as a physician? to get a patient who has been resuscitated in the field and then have the opportunity to take care of them? I think it's a great question. I think that's actually, you know, I'm glad you brought it up. I think it's probably one of the more dramatic, clearly one of the more dramatic and kind of impactful scenarios that we deal with in medicine, not just in cardiology, but in all of medicine, perhaps, because you've taken somebody who is otherwise, you know, healthy, you know, perceivably healthy. And often these are young, young patients who have an acute event out of the blue, unpredictable, usually, and they've received emergency care out of the hospital, then are transported to the hospital. And, you know, you're sort of taking somebody who basically is as close to death as you could be. And you are essentially reversing that with all of the kind of contemporary uh, therapy, i.e. the AEDs and hypothermia. That's the other really important intervention that's that's been part of the uh, contemporary approach to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest over the last 10 years or so that's made a huge difference in survival and neurologic recovery. So both the AED and hypothermia Getting the patient to the hospital quickly to receive continued care is an incredibly powerful and dramatic event. I mean, seeing patients come back completely okay from that to go back to life normally is really an amazing thing. And and it really does reflect on on the advancements that we've had in medicine and and in this case, cardiology that, you know, are so, so important. I'm going to go a little out of order here. This is the week that we recognize AED and CPR. It's also June, really difficult time for me personally. I've experienced a lot of loss due to HCM in the month of June. And I want to just reflect on two of uh, the losses that we had in our family. In 1953, my grandfather had a cardiac arrest at home before AEDs were even dreamed of, before CPR was actually formally accepted. And my dad tried to do chest compressions on his dad. My dad was 17. His dad was 42, 43. And it didn't work. 
and his father died. And then you go forward to 1995. And my father is again, first responder at my sister's cardiac arrest. And they did good CPR, but there was no AEDs on the volunteer fire equipment at that time and the emergency equipment in our town. And um, so they did good CPR and they got her to the hospital and they got a heart rate, heartbeat back. And had there been an AED on the rig, my sister might be alive. Had there been hypothermia in the hospital, my sister might be alive. Six months after Lori died, there was AEDs on the ambulances. By 1999, we had AEDs in our local schools. By, you know, now we have hypothermia, we have cooling protocols, we have more tools in the toolbox to save the lives of people like my grandfather and my sister. So to all of you who have contributed to the science, I thank you. To families out there who will be saved in the future, it's amazing. For those of us who've lost loved ones because all the safety mechanisms weren't in place at that time, we keep fighting to make the future better for those who come after us. And so it's probably worth mentioning what hypothermia is. Maybe some, I guess that, yeah, please. that term out. So just, just so those listening, you know, who aren't familiar, hypothermia is sort of a, a sort of a technique or strategy that we apply to patients that have had out of hospital cardiac arrest. When you have a cardiac arrest, whether it's from HCM or another cause, you experience, at least for some time until the heart's restarted, a decrease in blood flow to the brain and other organs. And that decrease in blood flow to the brain can have very quickly irreversible neurologic effects. That's one of the obviously most important complications of a cardiac arrest when the heart is not beating oxygenated blood appropriately. So what has happened is that patients Two things. One, as you were just saying, the penetration of the defibrillators into the general public in a much more powerful way than 10, 20 years ago is increased access so that when a patient has a cardiac arrest, they receive oftentimes much quicker restarting of the heart with the external defibrillator that's hopefully available. And then, then as well, the hypothermia is something that started in the hospital where patients are, their whole bodies are cooled and then rewarmed. And that process of cooling down the body, slowing metabolism down for 24 to 36 hours, and then rewarming has an impressive effect on improving any potential irreversible neurologic insults from the cardiac arrest. So it's made a huge difference in not just survival, but obviously cognitive function after cardiac arrest. So that's what hypothermia is, cooling and then rewarming that has a huge benefit. I remember learning this in real time in 95 when my yeah, sister, yeah. you know, was in one hospital and they're like, well, we got her heartbeat back. And I remember thinking back from, back from where, where did it go? <laughs> like it, very odd wording. And my brain went to like, well, where was she going? And death is where she was going. Mm -hmm. And um, they said, well, now we just need to see how much damage has been done. We waited for three days to check her brain activity and she was hypoxic and her brain was very damaged. Mm -hmm. And if there were any chance of recovery, she she would not have probably been herself anymore. So um, there wasn't even a chance for that because the minute you take her off life support, she can't sustain breathing because her brain had shut down and her respiratory system would have collapsed. If things were just that little bit different, 
if we were a few years ahead and we knew about yeah. cooling and we knew about these things yeah. you know, rather than letting her sit there and develop the hypoxia after the arrest, maybe if they took some action and cooling, things could have been different. They are what they are. And I think thousands of people worldwide have been saved because Lori has pushed her little sister into becoming quite the fierce advocate. So Lori's in everything that we do. And she's why we created the Lori Fund. If you are at all interested in learning more about my sister or what happened there, you can visit the website. So get your AEDs ready. Probably in two, it's just, it's important, you know, as well to mention that, you know, I can cut two different foundations that come to my mind that have really also worked with you and others to increase the availability of AEDs in the general public that are connected to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the Babbitt Foundation, if you want to say anything about that, but they probably deserve a shout out for sure. And all the work that they've done to increase awareness about cardiac arrest and availabilities of AEDs. Absolutely. Fantastic organization. And of course, our friend, Mike Papali exactly. and, and right. in a heartbeat and uh, yep. they're doing great work to make sure that AEDs and, and CPR are taught and the AEDs are placed and we are all working together to ensure good Samaritan coverage in whatever state you live in. That if you try to do CPR or use an AED, that you are held harmless of liability. Check your individual state for the state regulations there. But collectively, along with our colleagues at American Heart and American College of Cardiology, we're all fighting for the same thing. And that is the chance for cardiac patients to survive and thrive. So um, thanks to all of our partners out there. We really look forward to our continued collaboration. I just got to give a quick shout out to Mike Papali though, again, because I mean, I got to just say, I mean, I got to just say before you go on that, I mean, you know, I, I, I know him, he's a survivor of cardiac arrest and he is a unbelievable force in this, uh, in, 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 in he's really sort of dedicated his, his life now to this cause of preventing sudden death from HCM and other causes. And, and, and of course, the uh, part of that has been uh, his ability to um, uh, increase the availability of, of defibrillators. Um, he's incredibly passionate, uh, really enormously, incredibly good guy. So I just, we got to do a, a shout out to Mike. So he's really big shout out to Mike. And I would encourage you all to go back into our YouTube channel and our previous yeah. podcast where we've spoken with Mike. We'll probably have him back on in the future. And I, I will say that for me watching what he's doing, one day I was sitting in my office and a mother called me and said, my, my son is in a coma right now. He just had a cardiac arrest. And that was Mike's mom. And that is where my relationship with him starts. He was unconscious. He doesn't know it started then, but I walked with his mom through every step of his recovery and referred him up to you actually. And I I feel like feel connected. (laughs) I feel invested in his success. And I love that he's gone on to be a wonderful advocate and is using his voice for such good. And he's written a great book. He's written a great book that that if those interested should check out because it's about his story, but it's completely relevant to what we're talking about, of course, and really powerful, very moving. Did an incredible job with that. So check that out. Absolutely. I think we we had it at one point on a website. If, If it's not on our website anymore, I'll talk to him about getting it out there. The topic of the day is actually exercise. So I'm going to pivot away from AED and CPR awareness and all of our great partners to being diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We know that um, depending upon the year of your diagnosis and where you were diagnosed, you might've gotten some mixed messaging 
about the appropriateness of exercise in your life. I know when I was 12 years old in 1980, I was basically cautioned away from exercise. That had some downstream consequences. Marty, what is the appropriate thing that a patient who has been diagnosed with HCM should be told early in their diagnosis and then after their care has been optimally managed, what should they be told? Yeah. So as you just said, I mean, there's been an enormous amount of confusion, ambiguity around this area uh, in HCM for forever. So great that we're having this conversation and hopefully that we can clarify to some degree this issue for, for people listening. So here's the deal. We have always supported the recommendation for patients with HCM to continue to engage in mild to moderate recreational level physical activity for the benefits of those activities on physical health, cardiac health, and mental health as well. That that's So that's always been part of the recommendation. We've always supported that. There's never been the idea that if you have HCM, you have to go sit in the corner and be sedentary. You know, that's in trade, maybe one disease again for another in that situation. So we never, we never, we never said that the guidelines for HCM, the practice guidelines have never said that. So the, the principle has always been okay for almost all patients. And again, the, 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 the big message today too, is always you have to, this is a conversation you always have to have with your expert provider about the specifics here, but in general, almost all patients we've said, okay, to engage in mild to moderate recreational level activity. Now, defining that has been is a, it can be challenging a little bit. Here is where we have landed there, which I think is a way a good way of describing what we mean by that. So, what we tell patients and what I think is supported by the observations in the last 30 years is that we define mild to moderate recreational level activity as, for example, if you're going to go for a jog or you're going to get an elliptical machine or you know stationary bike, you want to ease into the workout. At peak exercise, what I like to tell patients is that they should still be at that point able to have a full conversation if somebody was theoretically next to them, able to complete words and sentences without straining to do so. That's a situation, that's a that's a point where you can get your heart rate up, get the benefits of exercise, but don't get exposed to what we think is really the adverse issue, the kind of burst exertion, the really quick bursts of adrenaline that can lower the threshold to induce an arrhythmia. And that's the concern that we're, we're focused on is the risk of arrhythmias with exercise, with really intense physical exercise in HCM. And then at that level, patients can go as long as they want. Um, there's no, you know, there's no real evidence that duration is an issue. Um, so steady, even as long as they want. And then a nice cool down at the end. And again, avoiding that burst exertion, what would be like hit, hit workouts or going from zero to 60 too quickly. It's all got to be steady, even and in control. And if there were symptoms that allows you to stop and, and, and be prudent to, 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 to minimize any pushing through symptoms. So let me stop there. That's a, that's let's the first part of the answer is that's what we've always said is okay. If a patient is originally diagnosed by a community cardiologist who hears hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and says, stop doing everything, just sit down. Right. That has a that's a psychological impact that some find it hard to get past. Can we talk about why working with a specialist in HCM, a center, is so important and has such value, especially for the newly diagnosed? 
Well, one, you can, you know, one that the HM specialist can, of course, assess each individual patient, their, their specifics of their clinical profile. As I told you, there can be, there can be certain situations where a certain aspect of a patient's clinical profile could, could change how we, you know, recommend certain aspects of physical exercise. So you kind of always want to be talking to an HCM expert, I think, who can evaluate the specifics and the nuances of a patient's clinical profile to provide the best kind of tailored recommendations about physical activities and also to frame those recommendations in the right way instead of what you just said, which is what we still hear too often, which is patients get told on the initial diagnosis, you've got a time bomb, don't do anything, sit on the couch and don't do anything, which is just not based on any evidence or reality that that is, you know, what they should be being told, but they have been, you know, historically. And so that has to be put in a completely different context. And the best way to do that is with an HCM expert evaluation. I have a dream for patients with HCM who've been misinformed that they should sit down and not exercise and parents of children who've been diagnosed. There's a level of anxiety when it's your kid. Sure. And what, what level of exercise should your child participate in? So I, my dream is to have exercise prescriptions for families and teach them how to exercise as a family with a little bit of medical supervision so they understand where the limits are. I think that would be really helpful. And I talked to some friends over at the World Heart Federation and they've done work in this area. And I'll be talking to you more about a protocol design that they've looked at and their exercise, their cardiac rehab specialists. This isn't sure. necessarily rehab, you're not rehabbing from a particular injury or surgery, but just to learn how to exercise safely. Sometimes patients feel more comfortable doing that in front of a medical team under some supervision. I want to, I want to build people's confidence and, and let them know what's safe. And some people may need to do that in a supervised environment. Others may just need a buddy to go walking with. Right. So should patients with HCM exercise alone? Well, look, I mean, I think the answer to that is that the preference for sure is that they exercise, you know, with somebody else or an environment where there could be somebody available to assist them if they needed it. That's not always 100% practical. So you've got to individualize a little bit. But of course, if all things equal, it'd be better to be exercising with people than without as an extra layer of, of, of assurance or protection. But again, coming back again to, you know, the science and the observation have been over the last 30, 40 years is that we don't have any evidence really at all in HCM that mild to moderate recreational level activity puts patients with HCM at any increased risk of an event. That's really, really important. The challenges have been more for sure focused on patients with HCM who are engaging in much more vigorous levels of activity like organized competitive sports, which we may or may not get into today, but. Well, now that you brought it up, we got to talk about it a little bit. (laughs) Shoot. I shouldn't have brought it up, but, um, but I did, but I did. Let's Um, stage the contrast. Yeah. Let's stage it a little bit. So exercise is universally good for everybody. Aerobic exercise, getting your heart rate elevated, getting the benefits of that type of exercise, stretching, toning, those types of exercises are good too. But in terms of cardiovascular benefits, it's good to get your heart rate up and go for a walk, a jog, use an elliptical, a bike, or other types of apparatus. Correct? 
Yes, correct. Okay. So let's take it to after you do exercise, some people want to add sport to it. Yeah. And this could be a pickup soccer game, a pickup basketball game. It could be a slightly organized adult league, a softball league. How are we viewing recreational sport activity? You know, it depends a little bit on, you know, the, you know, the level of, of uh, intensity and vigor that, 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 that recreational level activity is, is, is involved. It involves. So in other words, it, it, the, the, this whole thing is a huge spectrum, right? Um, it's a big, 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 big spectrum. And patients could be, you know, considering themselves to be involved in recreational activities, but they really are, that really are not really at recreational. They're pretty competitive. Let me give you an example. So, you know, I had a patient who came to me and told me that this is a 45-year-old patient with HCM, told me, look, I am participating only in recreational ice hockey in New England. I said, I said, right. <laughs> actually, I have a couple of patients like that, but, um, yeah. um, but, but, but I said, well, wait a minute, hold on. What do you mean by that? Exactly. You know, and when we got into sort of talking about it, yeah, it was an adult league, but it was for all intents and purposes as competitive as in a way as college level ice hockey it just got the recreational label because these people because because the perception was that this league was was not that intense based on the people that were playing it but the bottom line is was was it was and so this this is a spectrum and you've got to really essentially have these kinds of conversations that that involve the individual decisions about certain sports with your HCM specialist. That's the only way to resolve it. The bottom line uh, as well is that, you know, that and the reason that's important is that vigor, the, maybe people listening may, may not, you know, understand what we mean when we're talking about concerns related to really vigorous, competitive-like sports, is that there has been the concern that that type of environment for an HCM patient can increase the risk of a potentially life-threatening arrhythmia starting or being initiated because of the conditions that vigorous competitive sports impart on the HCM heart and patient during that time. In other words, it's almost like a potentially like a risk factor. And those things involve a lot of different aspects, dehydration, adrenaline, the intensity of the sport, et cetera, all kind of coming together potentially in an individual patient to change that patient's risk of a life-threatening rhythm with really vigorous competitive sports. That's the concern. And that's why this discussion really is so important that it needs to be individualized for patients with their HCM expert provider. We did a segment earlier this week on the Live HCM trial, which is a good starting point. It's it's a good data collection, but it's not going to answer every question because we don't have every variable right now. The findings of the Live HCM trial were by the definition used for this particular paper, there was no difference in outcomes between the moderate and intensely active individual, moderate 
activity versus intense sport activity. Criticism of the paper and a fair one is those definitions were self-reported by the patient and we didn't have any, you know, there was no tracker information. We didn't have Fitbit data to work with, Apple Watch data to say how active these people really were. So somebody who was claiming that they were, you know, involved in intensely vigorous sport. We don't know how often they were doing it or if they were doing it at all. We just know what they self-reported. So I would love to see a time where we could measure this a little bit more effectively and then look at the data again. But in that data set, there was no difference in meeting the endpoints, which were cardiac arrest, um, advanced heart failure, or ICD uh, discharge, I believe, were the three endpoints. A couple of people in the trial went to transplant. Several had ICD discharges and there were a couple of cardiac arrests and there were some deaths, but the groups, as they categorized them, there was no difference between the intense activity patient and the moderate. It gives us a starting point, I believe. And I think it's an important starting point, but I think we need more data. What do you think? Yeah, no, it's a great starting point. I mean, I, I think, you know, shout out to the, to, to those investigators uh, that put the Live HCM study together. I mean, it's it's really helpful in in a lot of ways to gain greater insight into this issue with the data. But the story's not finished, and 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 as you said, we still need you know more data. We need more information to to, to continue to inform on what is just really a complicated and challenging medical decision making area in HCM. And 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 you know, I'll just sort of say that. Look, I think, you know, for the for the patients listening, you know, it's, it's this is a really well, the reason this is really it's such a challenging area is that there's so much individual variability in, in, in any patient's HCM. You know, there's all kinds of different factors that any kind of HCM patient can have. There's lots of it's, it's a huge spectrum to what an HCM patient may have related to their type of HCM. And there's a huge spectrum to what is going on when a patient engages in, in, in sports. Different sports have different intensities, different sports have different positions with different sports. It's a hugely heterogeneous area as well. And so you're kind of merging two things together that are both sort of hard to precisely define in terms of, in, in terms of risk. And that's why the best way to go forward here, if you're an HCM patient and you're interested potentially in exploring more intense physical exercise is, is really having that discussion with an expert. I'm going to talk about a specific subgroup and I don't have an answer here. This is the discussion, not, not a data point to present. It's, it's a hypothesis and discussion. And the woman that I was recently speaking with was training, doing some pretty intense training for, I think a half marathon or no, it was, um, I keep saying that it's triathlon. And this is not um, a 20 something. This is a 50 something year old who was training for this. She had gone in for a checkup with her HCM team. There was no MRI done at that visit, but she had a previous one. Everything checked out. Okay. And she said, I'm, I'm doing just fine. And two weeks later, she had a cardiac arrest while having dinner after uh, a day of exercising, she was having dinner with her husband and son and she had a cardiac arrest in a restaurant. And then she got brought back in and evaluated again and they worked up everything. And surprise, surprise, she developed an apical aneurysm at some point. And apical aneurysms can be a nidus point for arrhythmias, as we know. It kind of speaks to some caution here. There's no real clear guidance right now on how often we should be getting MRIs. So I think at that two weeks before she actually had her arrest, 
if there was an MRI done, there might've been the observation of the apical aneurysm and there may have been a change in recommendation in terms of her exercising with an apical aneurysm, which is very different than exercising without an apical aneurysm, I would say. Is there, can you address disease progression as part of the really important part process of determining what level of activity is appropriate for a given patient. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's, that's sort of what I was saying to before is that, you, you know, that you, if you're interested in exploring different types of activity with HCM, you, you've really got to get an evaluation. It's really important to get an evaluation with expert expertise, you know, HCM expertise, because of just what you said, you need to be, you need to have a certain kind of evaluation that includes certain types of testing so that we can best assess with your with a patient's specific type of HCM and morphology. And you just pointed out one of those potential major differences in morphology that could impact how we perceive that patient's risk to be with sports, an aneurysm, but there are many others too. And, mm-hmm. and that's why we have to have somebody who can do the evaluation in, 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 the, in the contemporary way that we need to, to best inform the discussion with respect to sports. That said, people have to realize that that there is no way there is there is no way now and there's unlikely to be any way going forward that we're going to be able to arrive at a high level of precision about what that risk may be for an individual HCM patient who wants to engage in more vigorous sports. We don't, we're not, we don't have a way right now of saying because of your specific type of HCM, your risk of a cardiac arrest by participating in organized competitive sports is this X percent increased if you do it. We, we don't have that ability. There's no way to generate those quantitative numbers of what that excess risk may be for an HCM patient. We have ways of probably saying that because you have this or this with your HCM, it's likely that that may increase your risk, but to what degree that risk is increased is hard to quantify. Okay. That can still help inform the decision. It can help patients make decisions that are good for them, but patients should also realize that we don't have a way of exact precision here. There's no lot precise line in the sand. It does. It's just not that kind of situation. Again, encouraging not only once in your lifetime checkups, but, but reevaluating your risk on an ongoing basis is right. critically important. It doesn't have to be necessarily every six months or every year with a center, but would you say at least every two years, patients should be checking in for comprehensive evals with high-level centers and then working collaboratively with a home doctor in most cases? Yeah, I think you know what we what we usually say at a minimum is that patients should be reevaluated on a yearly basis with an HCM expert center, hopefully, um, and then. You know, in between that, it's very reasonable for patients to also continue their relationship with their general cardiologist too, super important. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of every six months, you know, getting that evaluation by the local or general cardiologist and then the HCM specialist. And and if you're participating, particularly if you're participating physically in activity, it's super important to make sure that you get reevaluated yearly for the reasons that you just said. Things can change over time with patients HCM. And the HCM experts are the ones that are most attentive to that issue. 
And so super important, particularly if you're active to make that yearly, make it a yearly evaluation. At some point in the future, you and I are going to have a long, deep talk about the economics of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and um, some of the challenges that our community is facing for these families to get assessed and get their kids screened on the, on the basis is that they should be. And that healthcare providers need to be our partner in this, not our adversary, which seems to be what's been happening lately. Um, the reason I bring up the every year versus every two years is some families just can't afford every year evaluations by high volume centers. It's every other year. Do you see a role for reassessing via telemedicine for some people? Can that be as effective as an in-person visit? We know that there's imaging that needs to be done, but I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people really struggling financially with being able to make those trips. Do we have any best tips? Well, there's the potential option, too, of telemedicine with your HCM expert provider. That may be an option. If you can't physically make the trip because of cost or distance or whatever it may be, there may be the option of still doing a visit through either phone or video for telemedicine, where if that's possible, that provider can uh, review the testing that was done at least locally by the cardiologist, the echo and IU or MRI to at least give opinions on whether things have changed and, 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 and whether or not there's a different recommendation through telemedicine. That's one option. And I think that's probably the, at this point, that may be the best option, to be honest, in that situation. Mm-hmm. We're in an era now where telemedicine uh, is now part of the routine you know, situation. So I think that's what I recommend for, for, for those that can't go to an HCM expert on a yearly basis. Fantastic. Okay. Any other points that you want to round up? If anybody has a question, now would be a good time to post it. Any other things you want your patients and the community to know about exercise and activity in HCM, especially as we head towards the summer months and more people are going to be out doing things. Yeah. Stay hydrated. That's super important. I mean, you got to really stay hydrated at at all times, but uh, but particularly, of course, during the summer that that helps. That's important. And uh, one, it'll make you feel better if you have ATM, if you're hydrated, but also keeps you safer, I think, in a way, probably, too. So hydration, 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 really important Two, listen to your body. I mean, you just got to listen to your body. That's really important, too. If things aren't where they should be, then you got to stop and reassess and not push through super important. Different activities come up that you're interested in wondering about whether that makes sense for you, then you got to engage your HCM expert at that point to make sure that you've got the right insight and opinion about that activity. That's the other thing. I think it's funny. The most common question I'm asked these days in terms of sports and recreational activity Pickleball. People are obsessed with pickleball. My sister is obsessed with pickleball. I have never played pickleball. So I just think it's funny how we change the sports with the times. It, it is funny. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I've, I've also picked up on that too. I mean, I, um, I was told recently by somebody, a patient that that's the fastest growing sport in America, actually um, pickleball. So um, your, your perceptions are right on, of course, that, that is. And so if you're interested in pickleball, Again, that's a, an important conversation to have with your HCM expert. Is that okay for you or not? Yeah, I, I've, I've watched my sister play. They don't move around a ton, right, but right. You, you do have to be pretty agile. And I think your knees are probably more at risk than anything else in that one. 
We're going to wrap up here. We don't have any specific questions today, but I would encourage everybody to go back and look at Tuesday's webinar on LiveHCM. You'll, you'll see the data directly from two of the investigators and you'll hear that discussion. There were some really great questions floating around in that session. Thank you all for joining us with Marty Marin from Tales from the Heart. Thank you to our sponsors, Biomarin, Tanaya Therapeutics, Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, and Embrya Pharmaceutical. Thank you all for your support. It's because of you that we're able to bring great programming to our community like Tales from the Heart. So thank you all and have a great weekend. And it's 91 degrees already in New Jersey today. Stay cool, stay hydrated. Take care.